so God's word for us this morning is um, in Luke 15. We're going to do the whole chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over the one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man, he had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, 
and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he's alive, he was lost, and he's been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray one more time for us. Heavenly Father, um, even though you are unlike us and your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts, and we thank you that you speak to us. And we thank you for your word that is alive and active and slices us open in order to heal us. That's a word uh, that's a, a light uh, to what's in front of us and shows us the way. So um, would you, by your spirit, teach us this morning? Um, Jesus, may we um, see you more clearly as Steve prayed um, so that we can love you more dearly. Uh, in your name we pray, amen. All right. Um, in a room of this size, I am... Uh, certain that some of you have been contemplating becoming a disciple of Jesus for quite some time. Um, you've, been, you've been weighing this all up for a while now. Um, and you might even be thinking, especially after last week when we looked at the cost of discipleship, that, that salvation is free, but it will cost you your life. You might be thinking, okay, well then what do I need to do? Um, I, I know there's some kind of spiritual or cosmic change that needs to happen. What does that look like? How, do, how, does, how does someone go from not following Jesus um, to being against him, or, or even thinking this isn't really for me, to fully being in? Or to put it another way, how does one go from being unreconciled with God to being reconciled with him? What does that look like? Uh, good news for you this morning is Jesus uh, clearly and beautifully explains what that looks like, and he does so in the form of his favorite way of teaching as the parable. So good news for you. Listen up. Um, I'm also certain that there are many people in this room who, for you, you've, you've, you became a disciple of Jesus a long time ago, but, but somewhere along the way, you've forgotten what that transaction looks like, what, what, what happened there. And so a word of warning for you, if that's, if that's true for you, devastating things can happen in your life. Evil things can happen in your life. And so it's, it's equally important for you to hear what Jesus says today. Uh, this morning we're looking at a, a trilogy of short stories, of parables that Jesus gives. The main focus will be on the third one, uh, the parable of the lost son. Um, in my mind, this is probably the greatest short story ever told. Uh, it's, been, it's been made into countless songs and, and, and poems and plays and movies. Um, but the, the reason I love it so much is there are some uh, contextual details that we often miss out as Western readers um, but if we spend a little bit of time understanding the context that, that these first listeners, these, these first century Jewish ancient Near Eastern listeners, these things that they would have understood, um, these things become keys to unlocking probably Jesus' clearest and most beautiful uh, teaching on the gospel. Um, this is one of my, this, I was thinking this morning, I, uh, this is one of my favorite 
uh, topics that uh, we covered in Bible college about 18 years ago, which makes me feel really old um, that that much time has passed. And I actually preached on this about four years ago. So if you remember any of this, enjoy some second helpings. Um, I'm taking this as a, the Lord knew would maybe need a little help uh, for a couple weeks here. Um, really, we're meant to understand these three stories as one unit. Uh, all three stories really give us one unified message. Each of the story, you'll see, has a central figure, a hero of the story. And each hero is a symbol for God, for Jesus. And the allegory in the prodigal son is actually really obvious. There's, there's those three main characters. You have the father, you have the, the younger son or the prodigal, and you have the older brother. And the, the father in the story is meant to represent Jesus Christ. The, the younger son or the prodigal, he represents the sinners and the tax collectors. And the older son represents the scribes and the Pharisees. And you, you understand that by looking at the context that Jesus is, is delivering the parable. That's that's. It's hugely important. Anytime you're, you're looking at a parable of Jesus, the first question you should ask is, who's he telling it to? Right? Who, who's his audience? And, and we get that in verses 1 and 2. Luke actually tells us, here's who Jesus' audience is. Here's the reason he's giving the parable. Verse 1 says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Right, that's the context. Sinners and tax collectors, right? basically that's, that's, uh, that means the, the most despised people in the Jewish community, they were drawing near to Jesus. And not only were they drawing near to him, he's actually receiving them and eating with them. Right? In this culture of hospitality, that means befriending them. Right? That means I, I'm willing to be associated with you. And, and if you think of the... the, the, the the, the, the cleanliness, uncleanliness aspect of, of, of Jewish law, Jesus is, is willing, like if you touch an unclean person, you become clean, unclean yourself. He's willing to, to share bowls and to eat with these people. He's saying, I'm willing to, to associate myself with you, to share this cleanliness or uncleanliness aspect. It's incredibly shocking. And then you have the scribes and the Pharisees who are complaining that he receives and he eats with these despicable sinners. And Jesus, in, in his parables here, he, he turns to them and he says, that's exactly what I do. I, I, I have come to eat with sinners. Um, and as a matter of fact, it's, it's actually worse than you imagine. Um, I, I, I'm not only sitting down and I'm eating with sinners, I actually rush down the road and I, I shower with them with kisses and, and, I, and I drag them in that I might eat with them. And then he says, here's a story that explains how this happens. Um, let's look at the story. The, as I said, three main characters, the father, the younger son, and the older brother. Uh, the three main characters, there comes these three main points. Uh, which point that you pick up on really depends on which character's perspective you're seeing the story through. Um, so the, although there's, I, I wouldn't advise every time you read the scriptures, be like, where am I in this? You always look for Christ. But this is one of those, those, those parables that Jesus wants you to, to locate yourself in the story. The main point that Jesus is trying to accomplish with the parable is, here's what the kingdom of God is like. This is, this is what it's like. Here's, here's what the king of, the king of that kingdom is. Here's how you enter the kingdom. And he also wants you to find yourself in. So, but let me encourage you, as you're identifying with one of the brothers, keep your eye focused on the father. As, as we said, he is the main character. He, he's the hero of the story. 
And so let the father be the main person you're enthralled with today while also finding yourself in the story. The the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son, really plays out in two main acts. Act one focuses on the younger brother and the father. Act two focuses on the older brother and the father. So let's start at the, the beginning there. Act one, scene one, is the younger brother's reckless abandonment. Verse 11, and Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided this property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Right, so a couple things to note here. Firstly, we need to understand that what exactly the younger son is asking for. He's going to his father and he's asking for his inheritance. He's not just asking for a little bit of money so that he can take a trip. Right, this, this isn't a story about a young man who, who wants to find his own way in the world. He's not asking his father for permission to leave home and to go find his way. No, he's, he's going to his father and he's asking for his inheritance. He's asking for his share of his father's property that would eventually be passed, be passed on to him. But he's doing this while his father is still alive. Right? While his father is still in good health, he's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And Jesus' audience would have understood this to be an outrageous request from the son. That the son, he has, he has no concern for a relationship with his father. His only concern is what the father can offer him. The younger son, he wants all the blessings and the privileges of his father without the relationship. I wonder if that often describes how we interact with God, right? God, I, I want the blessings. I want all that you can offer. I just don't want you. I'm not interested in a relationship, but the, the abiding side of things, not as much. I'm interested in, in the, the fruit bearing. I'm interested in what you can offer me. You see, the younger son, he's making an outrageous and insulting request of his father. But the second thing Jesus' audience would have quickly understood at this point is not only, not only was this son's request unbelievable, so was the father's response. Like If the father was, was a traditional uh, ancient Middle Eastern parent, he would strike the boy across the face and drive him out of the house. Right? How dare you ask such an insulting and dishonorable thing? It's an outrageous request for anyone in the world, right? Like the, like the father at this point, he's expected to refuse, but he doesn't. And there, there's, there's also this added element of public humiliation that you'll see throughout the story, um, because that's another character group that we often fail to recognize in the story, and, and, and that group is this, this community that is witnessing all of this drama unfold. And I don't know about you, but, but I often imagine in this story this family home as this great home on top of a, a hilltop, like sprawling fields of wheat surrounding it. Like, I always think, picture the gladiator house, right? Amazing big, grand house, sprawling fields, but that's probably not the case here. If you know anything about the Holy Land, agricultural land is scarce, and actually farmers, they rarely lived on their farmland. They would, they would instead reside in tightly compacted villages, right? So there's this, this added element of community that's, that's usually assumed in Jesus' parables, 
And when you, when you add that perspective of all of this drama playing out in front of the Middle Eastern community, there's even more significance to the father's response to his son's outrageous request. He, he divided the property between his sons. Now look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Gathered all he had basically means he's cashed it all in. Right? He, he quickly, within days, we're told, he sells his share of the property, which if, you, if you're picking up on the details of the story, you, you know is a significant amount because this is obviously a wealthy family. Okay? We're told they have a herd of fatted calves. They have a herd of goats. They have house servants. They have slaves. They have a banquet hall large enough to host a large party. The, the father, he can afford to hire local musicians to play at the, the, the banquet. Right? The, the father, he's, he's not only permitting his share of the inheritance, he's also permitting that his son sell his portion of the property, which is a shameful thing because the father is still alive and well. Kenneth Bailey, point, he's a master at this. He points out that the, the, the father grants both the inheritance and the right to sell, knowing full well that the exercise of this unprecedented privilege will expose the family to public shame. The father's response to the son's outrageous request is equally outrageous to this audience. But, but you see, Jesus, he's not, he's not trying to give his audience this picture of an ordinary family to describe his kingdom. He, he, he's flipping upside down every expectation of how these characters should interact with one another in order to describe what the kingdom of God is like. So the younger son, he, he cashes it all in and what does he do? He bolts. Verse 13 says he took a journey into a far country. Uh, most likely the son, he would be fully aware of the shame that he's bringing on to his household. Right? He's, he's aware of the scorn of this community. And so he has no desire to stay near home. He, he packs up everything and he heads to a far country. And let's see what happens to him. The younger son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. It says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Right, so firstly, Jesus' Jewish listeners would have understood right away that this far-off country is a Gentile land. Right? There, there's no such thing as a Jewish pig farm, right? Uh, pigs are unclean animals to the Jews. You don't eat them. You don't touch them. Uh, if you do, you yourself become unclean. So there's this... this He's obviously left his Jewish community, and he's journeyed into a Gentile country. A little more context that Jesus' audience would have understood here that we usually miss out on is there's, there's a couple things going on through the son's mind as he leaves his village and he journeys to the Gentiles. You see, it'd be a, it'd be a huge mistake for anyone to lose their inheritance, especially while their father's alive, but to lose it specifically to Gentiles would have been, had even costlier consequences. 
Um, in the, the Jewish Talmud, we're told that at the time of Jesus, the Jews had this method of punishing any Jewish boy who loses his inheritance to Gentiles. Um, such a loss is, is particularly shameful. Um, this was written in part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It says, And now, my sons, be watchful of your inheritance that has been bequeathed to you, which your fathers gave you. Do not give your inheritance to Gentiles, lest you be regarded as humiliated in their eyes and foolish, and they trample upon you. It's particularly shameful to lose your inheritance to Gentiles. And so to discourage that from happening, the, the community developed what was called the Kazazal ceremony, this cutting off ceremony. Basically, any Jewish boy who lost his inheritance among Gentiles faced this cutting off ceremony if he returns to his home village. Basically, the, the elders of the village would, would, would fill these large clay pots with burnt nuts and corn, and they would break the pots in front of the boy and say, henceforth, so-and-so is cut off from his village, and the village would have nothing to do with him. Right, so there's this, that's, that's at stake here, but there's an even costlier thing going on through his mind, and that's the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 21 that says a rebellious son could be stoned to death at the city gates. So, so as he's leaving town, the prodigal knows, I cannot lose my inheritance among the Gentiles. But that's exactly what happens. Right? We're told he squanders it on reckless living. He spends everything. He, he wastes the whole thing. So not only has he insulted his father and broken that relationship, he's done the one thing that he knows he can't do if he ever wants to return home. He loses everything. And then things get worse. A severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need, right? Of course he's in need. He's absolutely broke. And what does everyone who's in that desperate kind of situation want to do? What would you want to do? I'm going to go home. Right? The one thing everyone needs in a dire situation is their family but he knows he can't go back. He's broken the rules, he's lost his inheritance. Going back empty-handed would almost certainly mean being cut off from that village and probably even death. And so, what does he need to do? The only thing left for him to do is to recoup his losses somehow, right? He needs, he needs to get the money back, and so naturally, he looks for work. He hires himself out to be to one of the citizens of that country who hires him as a pig farmer. So again, Jewish audience, this is egregious. And then in verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one, no one gave him anything. This is his lowest point, right? It, it doesn't get any lower than this. He's starving to the point of eating pig slop, no one gives him anything. Whatever friend he's gained along the way, he's lost. They've all deserted him. He's got nothing. The job isn't working out. He's not even making enough to feed himself. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me 
as one of your hired servants. Right? He thinks to himself, what am I even doing here? Even my father's workers have food to eat. I'm going back. And he, he, he prepares this speech for his father, right? He, he's ready for this, this risky return. I've sinned against you, father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Hire me as a worker in your field. Be careful in how we understand what's happening right here, right? Because some folks will, will think the moment of repentance, right? Finally, He's had a change of heart, and he's ready to apologize to his father. I'm not sure that's exactly what's happening. I don't think this is the prodigal's moment of repentance. I don't think this is where his heart has changed, because the text actually tells us why he's returning. Jesus gives us the reason why he's going home, because he's starving, and because he hopes his father will hire him as a hired servant why the hired servant and not become a slave? Because he, he, he still feels that need to earn the money back. He, he needs to repay his debt in order to gain his father's acceptance. Right? And the, 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 the interpretation that the, the, the son pulls himself up by his bootstraps and finds his way home on his own accord and then this celebration happens as a result of what he's done that simply doesn't make sense Along the, alongside the first two stories. Remember, they, and they are keys to understanding the third story. Actually, that interpretation is completely opposite of what happens in the first two stories, right? Where the, the finder in those stories, they find what is lost and then they celebrate finding what was lost. Right, the good shepherd, he finds his sheep, and then he celebrates. The good woman, she finds her lost coin, and then they party. Right? Surely it makes no sense that this lost son makes his own way back, and then therefore they have a celebration. No, I don't think this is where full repentance takes place. This isn't where his change of heart happens. He's prepared to go home, but for the purpose of repaying his father in order to achieve reconciliation and therefore get something to eat. The, the prodigal, in his mind, his main problem is I've lost some money. He, he, he thinks he's, he's concerned with the law. He, I've messed up. I, I've lost what I shouldn't have. I'm going to be cut off. Here's my solution. But he still doesn't understand. Because as we're about to see, the problem, it's not merely about a broken law, it's about a broken relationship. Possibly that phrase in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, is as much spiritual as it is physical for the prodigal. He, he thinks a sum of money will mend a broken heart. He's still a long way off. Verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And what did he do? He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate Right? So he's making his way home. He's, he's probably reciting that prepared speech. He's ready to make his case. He's ready to plead his case to become this hired servant to his father in order to earn his way back. And look at what the father does. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. How did that happen? What are the chances of that happening? How could the father be the one to, to spot him from a long way off? because he's waiting on him. He's, he's looking for him day after day, staring down that road, waiting for his son. And why was he day after day waiting for him? Because he knows he's going to fail. He knew his son could not make it without him. The, the father knew the, that lonesome journey the prodigal was on was certainly going to fail. And so day after day, he waited, watching for his son's return. And what does he do when he sees him? He thinks, there he is, my failure of a son, clawing his way back to me. No. He says he has compassion on him. His heart is filled with love for his son, with mercy. He's so happy to see him that he, he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. Literally, he falls on his neck. What an intimate scene. And again, think of his audience. This would have been an upside-down reaction to how the listeners of the story would have expected the father to react. Right? This, this Middle Eastern father is breaking the mold of patriarchy. He's, he's spotting the boy while he was still at a distance. The father, he takes his long robes in his hands and he hikes them up and he runs down the crowded street to welcome his inheritance-losing pig herder son. And as he does so, he utterly humiliates himself before the village. Out of compassion, he empties himself. That the father, he assumes the form of a servant and runs to reconcile his estranged son. Right? No, no self-respecting landowner would humiliate themselves by pulling up their long robes and, and burying their naked legs and running a, like a servant in public. This effort to reconcile his son takes complete humiliation by the father. As Kenneth Bailey points out, the father runs and he reaches the prodigal and he falls on his son's neck and he kisses him before he hears his son's prepared speech. Right? The father does not demonstrate this, this costly love in response to his son's confession. Rather, his offer of grace is a prelude to the prodigal's remarks. That is key to understand. Notice the prodigal's speech is only half delivered. He says, Father, I've sinned against you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he leaves out the request to become a hired servant. 
Some scholars suggest that the father interrupts his son's speech, not letting him get to his request to be a hired worker. Uh, But I don't think that's what's happening. I think the son purposefully decides not to include that line because this is the moment of true repentance. Right? This is the moment that the son is blown away by his father's actions. He can't believe his father's self-humiliation, that this costly love on display when the son absolutely does not deserve it. You see, the prodigal, he is surrendering his plan to try and save himself, and he lets his father find him. He, He finally comes to acceptance of being found. One Middle Eastern commentator wrote that the prodigal did not complete what he was planning to say because he saw from the running of his father to him and the grace-filled way his father met him and embraced him that there was no longer any place for his request to be made into a hired servant. For if after such acts from the father the son had made that request, it would have appeared that he doubted the genuineness of his father's offered forgiveness. Right, if, he, if he put that, that last bit in, he would be trampling on his father's costly demonstration of love and grace. And so the prodigal, he neither forgets to finish the speech, nor was he interrupted. Rather, his world was transformed by his father's costly demonstration of love. The shepherd, he goes forth to find his lost sheep. The the woman, she goes and she searches for her lost coin. And in like manner, the father must go out and find his son. And it's because of the father's public humiliation, right? His, His costly demonstration of love for his son that the son surrenders all of his plans of saving himself and he accepts being found. You see the gospel in the story yet? You see, the the prodigal, he he had a a critical choice to make here. He could refuse the grace offered to him, and he could insist that he work and pay as part of the solution, which is a very Northern Irish response, isn't it? Grace, I'll pay back. Uh, If you have me over for dinner, I'll have you over for dinner. You know, it's that, I I can't just accept free grace. That's one option, or he can surrender to his father's grace and repent and accept being found. And the result of what just happened is the same as the first two stories. A party is thrown, right? A a great celebration. Verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate And just like in the previous two stories, the father gives the reason for the celebration. For this my son was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. Right? The the celebration, it's not to congratulate the son for making his way home. The the congratulation is to, uh, the, the celebration is to congratulate the son for being found. Right? The the father doesn't say, hey, he was lost. And he's come home. He says he was lost and he's found. I found him. He was lost. He was dead. And now he's found. He's alive. Isn't that amazing? 
The banquet is a celebration of the Father's costly demonstration of unexpected love to find and resurrect his son. What a glorious event to celebrate. If there's any doubt in your mind that the father in the story is a symbol for Jesus, look at what the servant says to the older brother in verse 27. We'll jump ahead just slightly here. The older, the other bro, the older brother asks, what's all this commotion? And the servant tells the older brother, well, your, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf. Why? He says, because he has received him back safe and sound. Right? The father, he receives this sinner and he eats with him. What, were the, what was the scribes and the Pharisees complaining about back in, chapter, in, back in verse 2? That Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. Quickly as we wrap up, let's look at the older son. Verse 25. I'm leaking, sorry. It says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the, to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he, he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, Kent doesn't even call him his brother. When this, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, where in the story was that? Nowhere. He's, he is he is. He is really laying it on here. Probably prostitutes, right? Jesus never said that before. When he has done all of this, you killed the fatted calf for him? And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. So why is the older son angry? Is it because his brother's back and he's alive? Not necessarily. You'd almost think that if the servant told the older brother, hey, your brother's back and he's alive, that then the brother would immediately want to go into the banquet, right? Because there's a family meeting that's about to happen, right? What are we going to do about this, this prodigal? When's the cutting off ceremony? We're doing that, Right? But that's not what the servant tells him. He, he tells him that it's all over. That, that the younger son has been reconciled, right? The father has received him back, and he's done so without the prodigal paying for his sins. And that's why the older brother is angry. He, he's so angry that he takes this radical step of, of breaking his relationship with the father. And that, here's another bit of cultural context that just Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with. For a son to be present and refuse participation in such a banquet would have been an unspeakable public act insult to the father. The, the older brother's actions were outrageous. He refuses to go into the party. Right? He, he's, he's more than pouting outside. He is raging at his father's acceptance of this sinner. And his rejection 
of his father's reconciliation with the prodigal leads the older son to severing his own relationship with the father. And look again at the father's response. Jesus is, yet again, completely turning upside down the expected reaction. But again, the, the father, he, he breaks the accepted code of behavior. And for the second time in a day, he is willing to offer a costly demonstration of unexpected love. Jesus' listeners would expect, I think you and I would expect, this father to ignore this older brother, right? Ignore the public insult, we'll deal with the older one later, but he doesn't. In painful public humiliation, the father goes down and out yet to find another lost son. And instead of punishing the stubborn son, he comes out and he gently entreats him. The father begs the son. He, he pleads with the son. You see, amazing grace is offered to both sons. Only now it's being offered to a law keeper rather than a lawbreaker. Both sons are lost. But both sons have a problem of a broken relationship with the father. Both sons need to return to the father. Both sons are in need of being found. And the father, in both cases, goes to the sons and offers a costly demonstration of love. Did you notice, like, both of the sons were completely off in their attempt to define their relationship with their father. Did you notice that? Both of the sons were trying to define their relationship with their father as that of a servant before a master. Right? The younger son, he intended to come home and to become a hired servant. The older son, he argues that for years he's been a faithful servant. He's never disobeyed a command. That they both are defining their relationship in that way, and the father will not accept it. He offers costly love to each of them out of his determination to have sons who respond to love rather than servants who merely obey commands. Let me say that again. He offers costly love to each of the sons out of his determination to have sons who respond to love rather than servants merely obeying commands. The father tells both of them, you are my son because I say so, not because you have earned your way by working tirelessly. This is a story about the compassion of a father who offers costly love and grace to each of his two lost sons. And you know what's frustrating? Don't you love a story that doesn't end, doesn't like give you like a clear ending? <clears throat> That's what this story does. We don't know how it all plays out. Is the, is the younger son truly repentant? Does it last? We don't know what the older son decides to do. Does he, does he accept his father's costly demonstration of love and does he go back into the, the, the celebration or does he stay outside and grumble? We don't know. It's not really the point though. What matters is how Jesus' listeners will respond. What, what matters is how you and I will respond. And this is why finding yourself in the story is important, right? Which, which brother are you like? I don't think it's always clear cut which one or the other. Uh, in the deepest sense, each and every one of us is the younger one, right? We, we are all lost. 
We, we are all uh, depraved, estranged from the Father, running away. We're in a desperate situation and in dire need of being saved. Listen, if you, if you are a believer, let me remind you, like I said at the start, that this is what the Father has done for you. What the Father did for that prodigal son is exactly what he's done for you. Or maybe you're not, maybe you're one of those people at the start that's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. You're, you're like the prodigal. You're a long way off still. Listen to me, Jesus' humiliation his, his emptying of himself, his costly demonstration of love for you displayed on the cross in order to find you and bring you back to death, bring you from death to life, that is the grace that is offered to you without you having to earn your way back. In a lot of ways, most of us are like the older son, right? Pretty obedient most of your life. Maybe you're like me, you've had a prodigal year or two. Uh, but you're mostly described as a law keeper. And when your life is defined by being a law keeper, put it a different way, when your relationship with God is defined on your performance, it's so easy to find yourself outside the party, refusing to enter the banquet, grumbling that some filthy pig herder has been received and celebrated without ever having to do anything to earn it. You see, if the, if the older son accepts the love offered to him by his father, then he will be obliged to treat the prodigal son with the same loving acceptance which which the father welcomes the pig herder. The, the older son will, he'll need to be conformed to the image of his compassionate father who reaches out in the form of a suffering servant to both kinds of sinners, offering each of them undeserved, costly love. So just as we finish here, if, if you're still thinking, what do I need to do? You're still a long way off. What, what Jesus is, is telling you in this story, what, he's, he's telling you, here's what your focus should be on. Not what you must do, but on what I've done to find you. He's, he is wanting to knock your socks off with his costly demonstration of love in order to reconcile you and for you to simply accept being found. Come into the party. Isn't that amazing? Costly we, last week we looked at the, the, the cost of discipleship. It's a free gift, but it'll cost you everything. Here we see the costliness of, of his demonstration of love his sacrifice in order to freely bring us in. It's amazing. What, what, what a beautiful, clear picture of what happens in the gospel. And would you stand with me and we'll pray.